Welcome to the fall edition of the uh, 10 Weeks to Abundance Health program. It's completely different in here because of all the new setup and TVs and curtains and things. Uh, so we're going to hopefully work our way around that. I think we have the online thing figured out and we seem to have a pretty uh, <coughs> high-tech crew this time around because they're all getting the buttons right, so yay. <laughs> uh, we started doing this course, I think, 2001 although it was probably a bit more of a Chinese medicine adventure when we first did it. And I think I've done it twice a year since then. So that's about 35, 36 times we've done this. And every time it gets just a little bit different. I, I would say better, but I'll be polite and say different. Because uh, I'm always getting good feedback or I'm always learning new things that get kind of stuck into the, the manual and the information because um, what I would call integrative medicine um, Although it combines the, the vast wisdom of Chinese medicine, which isn't going to change probably anytime soon, and why would it? Um, but integrative medicine is kind of also on the leading edge of things, always popping up on new ideas and trying things. Because a lot of us in the inter integrative medicine, functional medicine world, we're not limited by our medical license. So if I'm going to say something as a Chinese medicine doctor, I have to say it very specifically. And if I want to say something else <clears throat> while I'm speaking as a Chinese doctor, I have to say like, this is outside of my license, but blah, 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 blah. Whereas if I go over here and say, hi, we're going to have a conversation about integrative medicine, then we can just have that conversation. And it's going to be a very leading ed con conversation. Again, because uh, I would say with pretty clear honesty in my sense, in, in my experience, it's about every two months that I really have to reset a certain amount of what I end up talking to people about because something new comes out about something. If it's, we thought it was gluten, now it's glyphosate. Oh, okay, well that still makes sense and, and explains what we're dealing with. But the information people are um, going to need to make the biggest decisions keeps changing. So that's why this, this program keeps getting updated, which keeps it interesting for me. Um, I'm assuming most of you, if not all of you, have gone through a sense of the 10 weeks. So I'm not gonna go through that and spend 20 minutes sort of re-explaining it. Uh, but we are going to basically spend today just going through what I would just probably call the common sense. Like there's just some things that no matter what you're getting yourself into or maybe trying to get yourself away from in the sense of a diagnosis, the most important thing is to just start with what's just obviously clear. Because if we're always overextending, kind of like a fisherman always going for the, the one that's apparently huge somewhere in a hole somewhere, uh, we're never really going to actually get started because we always wait until something other uh, gives us permission or gives us inspiration. So as perhaps boring as the common sense may seem and uninspirational compared to that big fish, <coughs> uh, I guess that's a guy joke, but um, we're always starting you know, with, with a foundation. And it's even if the foundation is purely common sense, you want to start there and feel confident that you're starting from a place of, of a deep foundation, not from a place of, I hope I catch a big fish, right? Because that, that's more like anxiety and anticipation, whereas a good foundation is kind of like what we call standing qigong. You know, you're just getting more and more calm, rooted, and present. So that's what we're going to get into today. And then we're going to get uh, throughout the rest of it into more and more detail around things like physical fitness, how strength training works, how endurance works, how endurance sometimes doesn't work. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the importance of sleep, water, rest. Rest and sleep are not the same thing. So we want to make sure we, we get a, a clear sense of what we may need with respect to both of those. We're going to look into uh, the mechanics of how people gain weight and lose weight from a medical perspective. Because when you look at it medically, honestly, all of the stuff we've tried since the 70s and 80s, like you know all the 
fake go-go dancing, aerobic stuff. Everything that we've tried as a fad in counter reaction to being overweight is a complete medical failure and isn't designed by clinicians at all. It's just stuff that people who are in okay shape think they should flog on their friends who are a bit chubby. And it's turned into billions of dollars of industries for some people, which, you know, yay, maybe. <laughs> but it's also hurt millions of people who've damaged their metabolism in a fairly crucial way trying to follow that advice. So we're going to get into that and pick it apart. Because again, those are just the fundamental basics and ideas we all carry around every day, like fat's bad for you, and we're going to tear into that like a badger, because without being impolite, that's purely medical BS. It's never been actually proven as, as any kind of actual medical theory. It was actually sold to us in the 50s by people selling cottonseed oil <clears throat> and a bunch of other, you know, uh, vegetable oil. So, oops. <laughs> So after we've gotten through that first two or three weeks of really grounding ourselves in what I think we all should have known in high school, hopefully, someday, uh, what we're going to get into is actually taking apart how your entire metabolism works. And that's going to focus on what your hormones do and what your neurotransmitters do. And you're going to get some questionnaires so that you can actually go in kind of in, inside yourself with, well, your book, <laughs> and, and just sort of check in subjectively with how each of those things is doing. Because your metabolism is kind of like what a symphony would sound like, hopefully, if it's being played well. But a symphony is played by maybe 100 people. So your metabolism is going to be the balance of all of your hormones, all your neurotransmitters, and you, which is basically your state of being and what you're working with and hopefully what you're aspiring to. But the kind of chaos that goes on inside your metabolism is literally referred to as metabolic chaos. Because at a certain point, trying to diagnose it, um, uh-oh, someone's not turned off their microphone. Sorry. Um, the reason why we call it metabolic chaos is fundamentally because at a certain point, you can no longer diagnose exactly what's going on. There's just too many moving parts for any of us to really have any you know, off, like honest sense or authentic sense of what's going on. And I would say that for most of us who are clinicians, it's honestly a little bit sort of sketchy to try and tell people, oh, I know what's going on when you actually just could say, oh, yeah, you got the chaos thing, <laughs> which isn't really saying you know what's going on as far as I'm concerned. But that, that's a big part of it. Another thing that I think all of us could use is a really good uh, retooling of how we understand our digestive system. Because a lot of us have the experience, or at least the understanding in our minds, that if we all went to the same potluck and we all ate the same, you know, pile of food, um, we would all fundamentally digest the food the same way. All right? Pardon me. I'm going to see if I can actually figure out why this is not supposed to be. I'm just going to see if I. No, nope, this person is not paying attention. Hello. <sighs> Sorry, everyone. Oh wait, I can mute it over here. Ha! I win. <laughs> anyway, um, we have the perception that if we all ate the same potluck, we would all get the same calories, the same protein, the same fat, the same vitamin C or whatever. And that's actually completely insanely untrue. But we all walk around just assuming, you know, we're kind of machines. We put it in, we get, we get what we're supposed to get. So the more we understand how that works and how each of us might have to rearrange some, some proportions on our plate, you know, as the, as the expression goes, to get the best out of our food, that's a pretty good information to have. So again, we're going to do that with those questionnaires and some Q&A just to make sure everyone's able to say, yeah, now I know my, my digestive system, how it works and what I need to do to take care of it. 
Then we're going to learn a little bit about your immune system. And <laughs> I can honestly say it's a little bit because your immune system's, I don't think I understand it yet at all. <clears throat> I've been doing this for 25 years and I'm supposed to be a professor. So <laughs> maybe there's just more to it than anyone's supposed to figure out. Uh, but we do want to have an appreciation of what it's doing because it's literally the barrier between the outside world and you. And if your immune system is a real friendly person who likes to hug everybody and is, you know, polite and wants, wants to make a difference for the, their neighbor, things go well. But if your immune system is um, aggressive, reactive, impatient, short-tempered, whatever metaphor you want to use, that's going to produce all your symptoms. And this is the thing that drives most of us a bit crazy. I don't think it matters if you're a clinician or a patient. Everything is your immune system's fault. If you have a symptom, it's because your immune system is too weak, too strong, or too confused. It's always their fault. So if you want to blame somebody, it's your immune system's fault. And you can throw darts at it if you want and get some acupuncture. Ah. <laughs> right? Um, but once we have a sense of what really triggers it, which re what really tires it out, then we're going to have the best chance we have uh, to turn off the biggest force of, of use of calories and destructive behavior in terms of mindset. Because your immune system changes your hormones and your hormones change your neurotransmitters and your neurotransmitters have a lot to do with you. Remember that chaos thing I was, yeah, it's, it goes on and on. <laughs> so from there, we're gonna get into your liver and what detoxification is. And then look at how elimination works and what your cardiovascular system uh, is really trying to do and um, why in the modern world heart disease, especially coronary heart disease is the number one killer of people because it turns out we, with, I don't know, a 15-minute conversation about how your vascular system actually works, most people will go, <laughs> oops, didn't see, you didn't, you know, see the math in, in that kind of clarity. And I think that's math we should all know, if not for ourselves, for everyone we know who may be doing those five things that give everyone heart disease. So uh, after that, we're going to get into our cells a little bit. And then the last conversation is going to be a little bit more a bit meditation, qigong, uh, kind of an experiential thing, just so that we can all leave the experience experientially. Uh, and hopefully a bit closer as friends and knowing each other a little bit more around what works and what doesn't and what we've learned and, and all that. Because this is a really creative and, and fun opportunity if, if you take it that way. So before I dive in, I just want to make sure everyone's good to go, all set. A big hand waving on the screen because now I can see all of you. I found the right button. Hey! Woo! Okay. And there's somebody who doesn't have their camera on, so I can't see whether or not they're picking their nose or something. <laughs> okay. So the first thing we're going to get into um, is basically just what we call the do's and don'ts. And we're going to get into that uh, from a, oh, come on, Chinese medicine point of view. Pardon my wiggling the buttons around. I just want to make sure I have this on. There it is. So just before we get into detail, you're going to get this book, which I think most of you already have. It's the Cleanse Manual. That's where you're going to find all your questionnaires and almost everything that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, if you like to read or highlight or scribble, then you're going to get the cookbook. Unfortunately, I, as had mentioned, there was sort of some chaos for me to get this all together in time. So the books are being printed right now. I'm supposed to get them Tuesday. They should be mailed out uh, Tuesday. So it might be getting to some people uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, depending on where you're at. So uh, what I'll do when I get home tonight or tomorrow when I send out the recordings is I'll also send everyone a, a copy of the, um, it's called the ebook of the cookbook. So it's like a PDF file. It's going to be 600 pages long, but it's searchable. So before you actually get the big book, you can just go through the PDF uh, ebook. And if you're looking for a ceviche recipe, 
hint, hint. You can just click on it and ta-da, you'll be right there. You don't even have to bend the book. We're going to focus a lot on state of being, stress reduction, stress awareness, uh, adaptability in that sense, because that's about 80% of everything in medicine. Uh, we're going to want to meditate. I would encourage you to, if you've never done any meditation, make up your own. Like, like literally say, oh, I've got to teach a class on meditation tomorrow. Hmm. And actually have fun kind of making up what you think intuitively you'd want to say to yourself and other people about stress reduction that has to do with breath, focus, posture. It could be walking, lying, running, dancing, sitting, anything you want to do. But if you don't have much experience, start with play because that's how children learn. And that's how they make room in their mind for actual experience and knowledge. If you are an experienced meditator, get a coin, like a quarter or something, and flip it, heads or tails, and commit to this, heads or tails, up to you. <clears throat> if it's one way, do what you like to do. You're probably going to do that anyway. If it goes the other way, make up something new. Right? Just because, again, it's better to be creative and inspired than it is to be doing your homework. And this is all about being creative as we learn, not, not just sucking it up like you're back in grade 10 biology class or something. And I hope you like the idea of some soup or some broth or something with boiled up bones and things like that in it. Because what we're going to be focusing on in, in the most uh, consistent way is what we call nutrient density. right? And we're going to learn about that a little bit today. But I just want to make sure that when we start looking at plates of food, we're looking at how in much of that food is going to enrich our whole body and also how much that food might give us homework for days later. Because some foods are literally a four-day load on your system just because they're convenient, which is kind of funny. It takes five minutes to put it in and it takes days to get rid of it. <laughs> some stuff that might take an hour to put together, you're just going to be, you know, it's, just, it's, it's not going to add a pile of problems for you. So, uh, Anywho, so let's get into the things. So in Chinese medicine, if I was to say there's like one thing you're going to learn probably on the first day, the first thing you're going to learn is called Fu Zheng Chu Xie. And it's a Chinese medicine uh, uh, understanding of the essence of health. So the word Zheng Qi often is translated as anti-pathogenic Qi because they're trying to sound it kind of like Western medicine, you know, so it's all sciencey and stuff. You know, it's like little brothers always try and sound like their bigger brothers or something. <laughs> Um, I would say in English, the best way to translate that term would just be your adaptive resources. Because whatever it is that makes this uh, work, in the sense of what we mean by zheng or zheng qi in Chinese medicine, it's about two things, your adaptability and whether or not you can actually apply yourself to the problem. In a way, it's kind of like money in the bank in the sense of resources. right? So we have this idea in Chinese medicine that as long as you can assist or support the thing that makes you adaptable, and puts money in the bank in the sense of calories, nutrients, fats, and, and you know you hopefully at rest feeling with some piss and vinegar, which is why I want people to feel creative like kids, right? Because you want to support that and make that your, your goal. Now, the best way to make sure you're going to keep your adaptability and keep that money in the bank or your resources available to you <clears throat> is to remove what we call the most erosive influences, right? Now, funny thing, when we say chu xie, it means to chase out demons. So just if you're wondering, what does that really mean? It actually means, you know, take the part of you that actually feels like you're ready for the world and get ready to fight demons and chase them out of yourself. So old school. <laughs> but that's, that's a really simple equation. Now, if we were to apply that a bit more personally and experientially, 
Um, and if you guys want to un unmute your microphones, I'll turn my volume back up a bit. Um, not that I think that actually does anything, but <laughs> um, what I'm curious of is what people think just intuitively adaptive resources are for you. And that's for people in the room, people online, I'll throw on some stuff. I can't type in a list right now because my, my bad computer skills are in chaos. <laughs> Morning ritual, great place to start a conversation on how to have a good day, <laughs> right? So I, I would put that on the list, absolutely. Morning ritual, even if it's just spend that extra 30 seconds in the shower feeling your way through your day and, and making sure you're actually feeling the best about you about your day. Anyone I know who does that, if it's a gratitude ceremony, if it's a other kind of ceremony, if it's a quick yoga thing or, or whatever it is, you can just see it in their eyes every time you meet them. You're doing that evil self-quantification, taking care of your life thing, aren't you? Because <laughs> people are, are just more present, right? So absolutely, mornings are where it all starts. Um, rest and sleep, right? Yeah, so like yin and yang, we, we, need, we need rest and sleep. And I'm glad you said them as two different things because as we're gonna get into uh, in a couple of weeks, sleep and rest are very, very different. And, and uh, uh, like I said, we'll get into that. Any other thoughts? Things you need to adapt to the world? Some of them are just as obvious as anything. Breathing. Yeah, breathing is a great way to kind of have that morning ritual over and over and over again, because it's about state and how you feel. Water, we're gonna learn all kinds of stuff about how to deal with water. Uh, nutrition. Yeah, and again, with nutrition and, and food, obviously the, the, the better, the better. And the more specific to you, the better. And then there's things like strength. Now, when you say strength, there's a, an often polarization between strong people, weak people, people who are really big and muscular and people who aren't. And that polarization makes us sort of freeze a little bit because our, our instinct is I'm not the person at the apex thing because we're, we're kind of primates. We just naturally think of things in the sense of hierarchy. Maybe in a thousand years we'll grow out of that habit, but. So far, we're not quite there. <laughs> Sooner would be cool. Right. So strength is just about each of us choosing to see if we can maintain what we can do or maybe add a little bit. So if you're not able to keep up your strength, you should be able to say to yourself honestly in the mirror, okay, I'm losing my strength and I'm not doing anything about it or there's a reason why and I'm doing something about that. I'm gonna challenge everyone to add a percentage, whatever that percentage needs to be, to whatever you can do for your strength. If that's you know repetitions or weights, uh, or you know how many chin-ups you do on your, your bathroom door, or whatever you decide to do with yourself, put that on, on the little fun challenges. And it doesn't have to be something out of Conan the Barbarian. It just has to mean I'm not ignoring the one thing that makes the body uh, release the most important hormones for repair. Because <clears throat> if you're not building strength, you're not building growth hormones. And if you're over 40, you're not going to get any hormones unless you're building strength. So even if you hate the push-ups, got to come up with something to make that part of your meditation. <laughs> I'll creatively get stronger as I breathe. <laughs> um, enough endurance, enough flexibility, enough silence. Right? I just came up with this new weird theory about the brain a few nights ago because I have bad sleep uh, patterns sometimes and I got into some research and it turns out in my particular kind of insomnia, if I want to take care of my sleep, all I have to do is be completely silent and have no sound for four hours. 
before I go to bed. So I haven't really worked out that in my life quite yet, but maybe once a week I'm going to make sure I give it a try. So there's lots of things that we could say are fundamental to your adaptability. Make your list on, on, on your own at some point and just say, what do I know really works for me? Circle the thing you know really, really works for you, and then maybe underline the thing you know you really don't like to do, but you know it's probably going to work. Because you want to have a bit of an action plan, and you want to make it as personal as you can. Right. So next thing is erosive influences or erosive choices. What do we got that's going to mess that whole thing up? Yeah, whew, alcohol. Yeah, coffee, cigarettes. All right, so <laughs> sugar, just thought I'd, before I forget. Yeah, stress, looping. Yeah, we're going to do a little, pardon me? Yeah, looping. Yeah, so we're, we're going to do a little thing on, on a slightly shamanic version of cognitive behavioral therapy later on. Because uh, if we haven't sorted out why our neurotransmitter are out of balance throughout the, the first probably three quarters of this, then it might actually just be behavioral. But before we start punishing ourselves, assuming everything that we don't like about our mind is our fault because we had weird parents or, you know, something, um, you'd be surprised to recognize that almost half of the momentum of what's going on in terms of your thoughts and feelings are as organic as the, the pressure is you or the person in your life that's pissing you off or judging you or whatever. So the more adaptable we come as an organic being, the more adaptable we feel as a conscious being. And the other way it works as well, the more adaptable and present we are as conscious beings, the more likely it is our body's going to say, hey, you're back. <laughs> Instead of, stop kicking me, I'm not a horse. <laughs> anyway, anything else you guys can think of that's bad, erosive? You know, dysfunction? Yeah, right, aging. Oh, yeah, well, gravity, time. Oh, man. <laughs> I just had a zero gravity time machine. <laughs> Yeah, kind of com compulsive, overcompensative behaviors. Yeah. I mean, everything, Netflix, every... Netflix. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Netflix is God. <laughs> How else do you get anything done? Right. Uh, dysfunctional relationships, workplace, at home. Uh, there's, there's lots of little themes that, that, that we, we just kind of get hooked into because we love them or hate them. But they're familiar, they're easy to love or hate, so we, we tend to bite onto them really quick. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to, let's be like kids, try something new, be creative. Because if you just keep going back to default, positive, negative, you're, you're actually getting away kind of stuck in the same place. Although it feels like you might be moving around. So we're going to try, hopefully every day, to feel something, try something, eat something, you know, think about something, read something, look at something new, or at least in a new way. So that's important. So... We're just going to mute our microphones unless anyone else has something awesome to share, uh, which is allowed, by the way. <laughs> awesome is allowed. So I like to say this to people, real food rules, because back in the generation that I came up in as a teenager, the word rules meant really, really good. Not sure if that's still cool. I think now it means sick. But for a doctor, that's a tough one. Hey, man, that's really sick. I'm like, really? They, they don't mean what I think they mean. <laughs> Um, it's also because there are some rules to what real food is, and the more we can kind of wrap our minds around that, have some humor and playfulness with, um, the, I guess, the common sense of it, uh, the quicker we're going to just dive in. And they're common sense as you'd expect.
So foods that are whole, and I mean that in the, the most sense of like, if you get vegetables, get the whole vegetable. If you get a, um, say a whole chi a chicken, get a whole chicken. If you're gonna get a roast, get the whole roast, because that has less packaging. And when it comes to being sustainable as, as, a, as a shopper, you can make a big meal, make a bunch of leftovers, and not have a package sitting there. I was in a relationship of four or five years ago, and the person I was with was definitely a very tough, Kootenai, hippie environment, mountain biker, tough, perfect kind of, you know, just a typical Kootenai girl who's just like, I'm going to save the world and have fun doing it. And uh, we had this bag of shame in our freezer, which was all the styrofoam from any animal products we brought home that were not whole. <clears throat> it's not about shame. I'm just saying if you start making little games with yourself, it, it can be fun and you can keep making really good decisions. The reason there's this little spot here is because when it comes to the idea of whole foods, um, eat the skins on your vegetables or whatever, when it comes to the whole grains, the skins and, and the shells and the hulls and stuff are actually a big problem. And I'm not gonna get into this right now because we have lots to get into and we're gonna cover this in quite a lot of detail later. But it is not an accident that all of Asia eats white rice. Right? It is funny to me as an educated person that in the 60s, and I'm not judging hippies, I'm one of them <coughs> in a way, uh, had the arrogance to borrow Qigong and Tai Chi and yoga and Tantra and Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, all these other traditions and wisdoms, things that go back thousands of years from Asia. We just borrowed all that stuff and stirred it in a pot and came up with whatever the hell made sense to us. And that's kind of what North America is, I think, a melting pot or something. But we had the temerity to tell, tell all of Asia that they're too stupid because they ate white rice. Because we got microscopes and you can see in the brown ones a bit of B vitamins, a bit, bit, bit of protein, stuff like that. So we wanted to just sit there and choke back our brown rice. But unfortunately, Asia is right. With their thousands of year, years old healing tradition, brown rice is not a good idea. It's not healthy in the long term. And in Asia, they eat rice probably twice a day. So if you're going to eat something that's a bit harmful twice a day, it's going to be a lot more harmful. So if you like brown rice and you have it once a week or something, you're probably going to be fine if you don't have any severe immune system problems. But if you like rice and you're determined to have some kind of grain in your diet, um, it's the white rice that's actually going to work in the long term. So just FYI. Uh, organic, I think we can all agree that the less toxic your food is and the more nutrient dense it is as it grows, the better it is going to be for you. I, I know a lot of people, myself included, that if I'm traveling, and I, not to offend anyone, but especially in the States, if I'm in the US, <clears throat> and I buy food in a restaurant, it literally tastes like nothing. Like there's so little actual food flavor in there. I don't know if it's been irradiated or what they do to it, but uh, if it's not organic and it's not fresh, then it's probably not really food, you know. And this is a weird thing we're going to learn later as well, but I'll just sort of preface it. From the minute you take a vegetable out of the ground and kill it, although some of them can keep growing for a while, they start losing really, really specific nutrients from that moment until you eat it, right? So I'm not saying we have to graze like cattle in the garden to get the most of it. Although I had a dream once of walking around a, a, a farm I used to work on <coughs> with a big jar of uh, Caesar salad dressing around my neck. So I could just walk around and just like yank stuff out of the ground and dip it and eat it. And then I thought I'd wake up with like this big belly one day and she'd be like, ah. That, that's my, my, my version of being a vegetarian. It's just <laughs> little Caesar salad necklace and I'm good to go. Uh, and that brings up the, I guess I'm sort of speaking to the fresh part of this because the fresher your food is, the better. 
And I mean that in the sense of when you make it at home too, not, not just uh, you know, when, when you buy it in the store. Because uh, you want to balance it out because we are going to be eating and cooking for convenience. So some of our food planning is probably going to be make a giant pot of stew, have a little bit until it runs out every day, but then you could have a salad next to your stew with maybe a bunch of really fresh stuff too. Just so that we always have as many living things in our food as we need. And each of us might be different that way. <clears throat> Local, I mean, I think that's common sense in the sense of the environment and, and fuel and stuff like that. But there's a subtle idea, and I'm not going to suggest that we need to hold ourselves strong to this, but there is a subtle idea in the more shamanic, energetic sides of medicine that um, you live within a biosphere, you know, in the sense of the feng shui or the movement of the, the seasons and stuff like that. And the more you eat in that biosphere most of the time, for whatever reason, it's considered to be better for you. But having said that, sometimes getting a special cactus from you know a desert at the high plateau in the middle of Mexico, depending on the cactus, <laughs> might actually be a really good thing for you in the sense of how uh, herbal medicine works. Right. So it's it's not one or the other. It's just recognizing that um, sticking to your roots in a way energetically is in some people's minds a really good idea. But those same people have the idea that you might want to go on a huge pilgrimage to the other side of the planet to get some shrub that's going to save your grandma. So it's not, it's not locked in stone either way. Seasonal eating, I think, is one of the most underappreciated and under, under, mis, one of the most misunderstood things that we can do. Now, we live in a very plastic environment as, as human beings right now in terms of what we shop for. I mean, how many people still hunt, fish, garden for most of your food? plastic environment. So <clears throat> when you're eating more seasonally, you're actually shifting, uh, well, assuming you're doing something that relates to nature, just make sure I'm being clear. Um, when you're eating seasonally, you're, you're changing your fat to carbohydrate, your, your specific nutrient ratios in a way that, as we're going to learn later on, actually fuels some very, very deep, very latent processes in your body. Right? And there's no other way to do it. You could probably try it with a you know a few jars of vitamins or something, but uh, yeah, I mean the more seasonal you're going to eat, the better. And you could just sort of naturally go like, what do you eat this time of year? It's fall, fruits and squash and maybe a bit of fruit. And this is when the animals are getting fat, so if you like fat from your animals, wait, right? Because they'll get fatter, <laughs> right? But this is a time of year when most people would gain 20 pounds to deal with the time in spring when there was nothing to eat, right? So. Keep it simple. Now, simple doesn't mean the opposite of gourmet. Simple just means, unless you have the time and the wherewithal to make something fancy, don't bother making something fancy. I mean, food tastes really good just the way it is. <laughs> and um, in the sense of changing habits, the, the easier this is for you, the more likely it is you're going to be able to stick with it. Uh, I use the word less popular. I guess we can't see that right now, but... Um, the reason I say less popular is because <clears throat> when it comes to farming, the more we over farm things, the weaker or the less nutritious the food is because we just basically weaken the soil. Also with less popular food, if you're particularly concerned with the environment, um, grocery stores throw away an amazing amount of food. Not amazing in a good way, amazing like, are you kidding? That just goes into the holy cow. And there's all these people walking around begging for money for food. <clears throat> so different subject, but 
Uh, every once in a while, I go to my grocery store and say, so what are you guys not selling right now? And they'll say, oh, this weird turnip and that thing called a rutabaga and this other thing, no one seems to know what it is. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll grab onto some of that because it's less popular and usually it's cheaper. So if you're trying to save money, that's good. But more importantly, you're probably getting some really good nutrient-dense food because it tastes a little funny because it's got some alkaloid or some saponin or something in there that's actually really good, right? So the more of a strong flavor some things have, the more medicine they have. Another thing we can't really see is, is low antigen. And we're going to learn lots about that because a lot of the foods that we would say from a certain perspective are nutrient-dense and very helpful because of how nature works, they also have anti-nutrients in them to protect themselves from being eaten by animals. And we're animals. So if we eat the food that's meant to protect itself from us, we're going to be eating something that's designed chemically to kick your ass in the sense that it's going to come out the other end and have caused you more harm than you caused it. And that actually happens. Remember the brown rice thing and not so good for you? Yeah. And again, I'll just come back to the idea of nutrient density, and we're going to play that, uh, take that apart uh, in a few minutes. Everyone's good with that? Common sense, real food? Yes. Makes it easy. So we're going to do a little uh, kind of geek out just on, on the evolution of human beings with respect to um, uh, the evolution of how we got here, but specifically with respect to the evolution of what we could find for food. Because the more we eat the way that we're genetically able to eat, and obviously if we ate that way and we still kept evolving, I think it worked. Because <laughs> the opposite is it didn't work, and none of those people have any offspring because it didn't work. So whatever it is that we're going to get into worked for a lot of our ancestors a long, long, long time ago. So one thing I'm going to ask you to keep in your mind as you look at this, because I have to pay for every image that I'm using up here, and I'm not complaining about that, I'm just saying... There's a limit of pictures of little wavy things about ice ages. So I'm stuck with the one I could find that works for this. And there's a couple of things you can't see. So I'll do it on the picture, or then I'll do it on my, my body so we can have a, a way to make sure we don't forget. So the top bit here, about the top 20% of these little peaks, that's when the world is like it is now, or was like it is now in the sense of temperate, warm, longer summers. People can live in Canada instead of be a mile under ice in Canada <clears throat> and stuff like that. So we've got these little blips of times where humans have a chance to be as uh, successful and productive as we are right now. And then down here at the bottom, that's about 15% of the, the volume of our last, say, few million years. That's been hard glaciation, like actual ice ages where not a lot of the people who are here now, not a lot of the animals and insects and birds and things were able to actually uh, proliferate at all. They were, you, most of them were actually holed up in little forests. Uh, in the last three million years, we've had nine uh, really severe ice ages, <clears throat> what we call near extinction level, in the sense that the mountains of snow and ice came so close together that there was like you know a, a relatively small area in the world where there was enough sunlight and warmth for animals to live, and there was only seven forests in the worst one left on the planet. So all of the mammals that we have now, including the primates that are still here, they were in one of those forests. Our ancestors, on the other hand, had to figure out something else to do. So I'll do that in my, my body just in case that doesn't make sense. So between my belt buckle and the top of my head, that's all of the temperature possibilities in the past. Anything from my chin up, about 15%, is like now. Anything between my belly button and my belt is an ice age. Everything in the middle, meh. 
not that interesting because it was, you know, shrubs and deserts and stuff. One thing I haven't mentioned that I want to make sure is clear, during ice ages at a certain point there is no rain. So there's nothing you can get every year as a seasonal food unless you're in one of those forests. So our ancestors, ancestors had to go way, way, <clears throat> you know, out of the, their, their normal behavior and start wandering around looking for food. And eventually they found the ocean and started knocking mussels off of rocks and eating them. So imagine three million years ago, there's some monkeys sitting there starving their butts off, <clears throat> eating mussels and, and, and things like that. And then getting the, the temerity and the courage to walk into the ocean and, and poke around and see what's in there. And there's only two reasons monkeys stand on two feet. One, do you smell anything bad? Two, I got wet feet. Doesn't matter if their feet are a little wet, if they're up to their knees in water, they'll be like this. So the more we started hunting around water, trying to find food that was uh, accessible that way, because there was nothing else to eat. That's where we ended up. And we ended up basically evolving over the last three million years after every successive ice age, forcing us back into the ocean. And I'm gonna do a little aside here <clears throat> because I come back, I, I'm a descendant from the Aboriginal people of this part of Canada. And we actually have in our language a memory of this experience, of, of these really vast seasons of, of, of time where we go back to the ocean when it's the really long winters that usually end in like tsunamis and hurricanes and volcanoes and stuff like that. And if you think about giant glaciers melting, you know, bazillions of gallons of ice, making grand canyons and stuff, that's pretty messy. <clears throat> but for the many, many years of the actual ice age when everything's relatively stable, <clears throat> Excuse me. The word in our language for that experience is niholdilchil. Now, most people can't make those funny sounds unless you're practiced. But um, that word actually describes a baby at its mother's breast napping, and then feeding, and then napping, and then feeding. It also means a certain kind of twilight. But you know, it's good to have lots of uses for your words. So I just bring that up to people because it's an instinct in almost everyone I've ever met when they have a chance to go on a holiday to go as close to the equator and as close to the beach and as close to just chilling out like a baby napping and feeding, it's an instinct because that's where all of our ancestors come from. Right? It doesn't matter what color your skin is at this point, that's kind of like garnish really, or a food metaphor. So if we're looking at the Ice Age diet, what people or early you know, primate humans would have eaten, it would have been mostly seafood. And I put sashimi here because that kind of means raw. So if you want to try some sashimi, which is raw fish you get in a sushi restaurant, it's typically frozen really low. So low, in fact, that the bugs that are in there can't actually live. So that you can eat raw fish and not get like a liver fluke, which could actually well, kill you. <laughs> so that's an interesting idea <clears throat> if you want to try it, because fish oils are very anti-inflammatory. So the more we can eat that way, the better we're going to deal with inflammation and aging. You know, you think of a... Uh, Japanese people are, I think, well-known around the world for living a long time and being fairly healthy into their, their old age. They eat raw fish a lot. They also eat a lot of sea vegetables to balance it out. So the people who are worried about mercury and radiation and things like that, if you always balance your seafood with your sea vegetables, it's very hard uh, for those things to really stick to you. The radiation thing from Fukushima, definitely a concern, but when you actually do the research on fish that we're catching in this side of the ocean right now, You'd have to eat 200 pounds of fish every year to get more uh, uh, reduced radiation than from a solar flare on a hot summer day. So just saying we're still okay for fish. Um, 
Eggs, for most people, eggs are like the wonder food. They're literally the healthiest thing you could eat. Unless you're one of the 4% of people who has a severe egg allergy or one of the 25% of people who already have immune system problems who have a reaction to eggs just because they're, they're a bit itchy in one way. So if you don't feel you have a problem with eggs, keep them seasonal. And since we're doing this for 10 weeks, seasonal might mean once or twice a week. Right? So that, that way we don't have to... Uh, and that's sort of a rule in, in the way I practice medicine with immune system patients, which is all of them, but specifically like autoimmune patients, is let's go down with certain foods you're not allowed to have more than three days a week. Because there are certain behaviors in your immune system, it takes four days in a row to piss it off. So if you're allowed three things, you're allowed to say have cheese three times a week, are you going to have it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or do you think you're going to save up one of those days for Friday? Even if you do it three days a week because you, you're just like hardcore addicted to your cheddar, it's three days, not four, so your immune system probably won't get too mad at you. Right? <clears throat> Avocados are another wonder food. Like, I cannot believe it took so long for them to be everywhere, but now that they're here, hmm. And, and they can actually reset some really tricky things, especially in people that are dealing with uh, kind of pre-diabetic syndromes and, and neurological things and stuff like that. Because uh, nutritionally, they're really, really unique that way. Um, any kind of vegetables that would be anti-inflammatory, and those are mostly vegetables that grow by moving water. Or uh, they grow really rapidly in the middle of summer. Right? Now that's interesting that Chinese medicine says, oh yeah, those foods are cooling. And that's from thousands of years of just understanding nature. But now we can sit there and go, oh, wow, cucumbers are anti-inflammatory. And it's like, yeah, well, they're cooling because they grow in the middle of the sun because it's hot, cold. Anyway, some people really like the science, and we don't really need to get into that. But the more you can focus on vegetables that are anti-inflammatory, more greens, more celery, more cucumbers, you know, things like that. Ginger is really good. Um, you know, there's a lot of possibilities. The more we're actually trying to honor what the Ice Age diet is about. Now, just as a quick aside, I use the term Ice Age diet because I'm an asshole. I like to make fun of everybody. It's just my sense of humor. So when it comes to the paleo diet and us trying to hang a whole bunch of ideas on what we think about the past and we have no idea, I cannot help but laugh at that because it's just funny. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means no one knows, so no one's right yet. So I just thought it'd be funny to call an anti-inflammatory diet an Ice Age diet just to make fun of the whole paleo thing. So just FYI, if you don't find that kind of sense of humor working for you, let me know and I'll try and be more professional. <clears throat> ah, maybe. <laughs> um, the, again, the greens that grow around fresh water are the best. Cilantro, parsley, watercress, you know, basil, uh, basil, things like that. And berries, especially like the raspberry, blueberry, uh, nutrient-dense berries. So we're going to come back to that in a bit, and it'll make a lot more sense. But I just want to have that sense of, like, does that make sense to everybody? You know, just a little wave, you know, that's actually where humans come from, unless we're from outer space. And from outer space, if we are from outer space, I'm pretty sure that we were probably primates on that planet, and then there was an ice age, and then we grew up and came here. Just saying, because we're physiologically built like a primate who learned to swim. We actually have a whole bunch of physiological metabolic practices or processes that are from a porpoise not from a primate. Now, just to be clear, before I move on, I am not saying that porpoises and primates spent some time together in any way, <coughs> but it could have happened in, in some science fiction novel or something. <laughs> uh, but we definitely do have, uh, for one example, if you're looking for something to hang that on, we actually have the subcutaneous fat storage of a fish. 
Primates do not get chubby the way humans do because we're more like a fish. Trippy, eh? Kind of creepy in a way. So after the ice ages were over, we had more land and more room to go and explore and go on adventures and stuff. But we were pretty early in the world and didn't really know much about what we were doing. So we were basically scavengers. And a lot of our metabolic habits right now are still the habits of a scavenger. So that's why we have to be super consistent with what we're doing because your body will keep just storing things for later because it's a scavenger, especially around supplements and stuff. So if you're a scavenger and you left the beach because it's time to move on and try something new, you're going to find the kills left over from things like wolves you know, or, or, or lions, depends on where you grew up. So you're going to be bashing bones apart that they couldn't get through with their jaws. You're going to be eating the brains that you bash you know, from the skulls. That's just pure fat and cholesterol. Mmm, brains. It's a zombie movie thing, but it's kind of fun to say. When we got really smart and learned about fire, we could render the fat into more carryable, concentrated uh, amounts. Um, one of the foods that was actually fundamental to the people in this part of the world where I come from, um, up north, <clears throat> that was our primary food source, was rendered fat with some pounded proteins and maybe a couple of dried berries or a bit of cedar to preserve it. So uh, that's actually what most people lived on all winter in this part of the world before uh, roads and stores and Europeans showed up. Not necessarily in exactly that order. <laughs> uh, again, eggs would be seasonal uh, just because we're trying to keep it uh, nutrient dense. But if you do have a sensitivity and you're not sure, just try not overdo the eggs. If you're sure you're okay, eat your eggs. Lots and lots of animal protein. At a certain point, too much is too much. And cooking method matters, and, and I'll get into that in a bit. Um, lots of fiber because you wouldn't be eating anything processed back then. And uh, when you look at indigenous languages uh, around the world, and I'm a nerd so I look at stuff like that, about 70% of the words they have for stuff is plant. Right? Most of their words are verbs, but when they start talking about stuff, and there's not a lot of stuff in those languages because, well, it's pretty natural <laughs> language, right? Uh, a lot of those words were, were for different kinds of plants, some medicine plants, some food plants. So that a lot of their diet was you know, based on that because, and this is obvious, I think, plants don't run away. If you're hungry, hmm, I will go and hunt the big mammoth. Well, there's a cabbage. Hmm. <laughs> right? So, well, cabbages didn't really grow everywhere. I'm just trying to have some fun. But the more we can have fun with high fiber vegetables that are really, really uh, things you would put in a salad or, or that kind of a casserole, <clears throat> they're going to do a lot better for you. Some carbohydrates in the sense of higher fiber carbohydrates, but you, you wouldn't be eating anything like pasta or grains and things like that because we didn't have any of them uh, anim or, or cultivated in such a way that they'd be an easy source of food. It took hundreds of years to get some of the grains to behave the way that they, they do now, you know, through farming practices and stuff like that. And some nuts and seeds, right? So nuts and seeds are, again, one of those foods that might turn out to be tricky later. But if you're going to be focusing on nutrient-dense food, try and get them that aren't. Uh, if you're going to get nuts and seeds, make sure that they're organic. And then try and make sure you soak them first. Right? And there's advice in the book on how to do that. But uh, that's what you'd be eating if you're a scavenger running around at any point between ice ages until we had control over nature. Uh, then we became what I would call tribal paleo people because we got more organized. And we were starting to get kind of migratory. And I'm just going to ask you to think about this. And now we're migratory people, but we're migratory and migrating in kind of a figure eight. 
So every summer we go to the summer place where we always gather in summer to party and hang out with our friends who might have a different figure eight, because that's how, at least in, in my ancestors' culture, it worked. We'd all come back from our trap lines and, and, and things like that in, in our little extended family units to the big tribal gatherings in the summer. So there'd be big piles of poop. I know that was a, probably thinking marriages and the fun things that could happen to big tribal gathering. Oh yeah, but then there was a big pile of poop where everyone's pooping all of the seeds into, and that's actually how we discovered uh, agriculture. And there's actually a, a story in, in our culture, of a woman named Squash Blossom Girl uh, was the first one to dedicate the time it took. And in the story, it explains how she tried all these different things to grow some food for her grandma who had two broken legs because she fell off of a cliff. And she wanted to take care of grandma, but no one was gonna feed grandma, and she was dragging herself around trying to find food, but Squash Girl decided to figure it out. And it was all based on piles of poop, so I'm just saying from as far as the indigenous encyclopedia goes, uh, that's how we learned to farm, was watching things surprisingly grow up in giant mounds of poop. <laughs> and then someone's saying, hey, that's free food. We could, we could do something with that. So, uh, yeah. So, um, another thing that we're gonna wanna get into, or, or as we get into this, is um, the more you can make your food kind of really simple, in one big pot, like a stew, a chili, uh, you know, casserole for your oven, stir fries and curries are based on that idea. It's basically a bit of meat, a bit of sauce, and a lot of vegetables, right? Like there's about a hundred different ways you can put those together and call it something else. But it's basically what I call a one-pot wonder, you know, where you just got a big pot, pot, pot of food. And one thing we're going to be learning about um, is the ideal temperature to cook your food at would be the temperature you would be able to use a clay pot. Now, I'm not trying to start a cult, and I do not sell clay pots, so I'm not suggesting you're supposed to be using clay pots. I'm suggesting you think about temperature of cooking. Say, for example, you have a stir-fry, right? So if you're making a, a stir-fry in, in a wok, you have two choices. One, you can uh, use this the wok to actually make a stir-fry that's like a Christmas fancy thing. And if you did that, you just pour oil in the wok and deep fry everything because that's badass and you should do that once in a while. It's kind of a waste of oil, <clears throat> but it sure is yummy to have something that was basically cooked in a bunch of fat. And now modern Chinese cooking, especially if you go to Chinese restaurants, is all what I call Christmas food or celebration food. I actually worked in a Chinese restaurant in my early 20s and I speak a bit of Chinese. And the things that they would say about the, the non-Asian customers coming in to buy all the Christmas food that they thought was actual Chinese food was and their mind's really funny. Oh yeah, you're gonna live on pork steam bun, you go. Because <laughs> um, the other way to use a wok is to put water or stock in it first, put some oil on top of it, put your ginger, garlic, and onions in there, put your meat in there, and then put it on the heat source. Because all of Chinese cooking is based on a lack of fuel. Right? But then as the, your stock starts to boil, the oil heats up, the meat heats up, everything else heats up, and they have this magic dance where all of the fats intermingle and nothing is cooked above the temperature of steam. Because these people spend a long ass time cooking in clay pots before they had metal woks. <clears throat> so it was an instinct to always start with enough uh, stock in, 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 in the meal in the clay pot to not destroy your clay pot. Because about as hot as you can get in a clay pot is boil water if you're careful and you've got some widgets. <clears throat> so one pot wonders, really good idea. Uh, I just sort of mentioned the clay pot thing. So that's especially true if you're cooking meat. Um, more roots and vegetables because now, I wouldn't say we're doing any kind of agriculture, but we're getting a lot more invested in foods that you can you know, dry for later. Because this is that tribal time in human history when we started making some really big leaps 
in not only how to uh, do all the technical things to live, but how to store food. And this is like a big thing in Aboriginal culture because you can find some tribes that had no uh, food storage and they had the least amount of war. And then you see all of the peoples who got really, really good at storing food. And what did they do? They started fighting each other over who had a pile of food. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's where the tribal side of things because it's us versus them sometimes. So the more we get into more roots and vegetables and storing it, the, the more we're going to be eating that in volume. <clears throat> again, more eggs seasonally, of course, because back then it would be seasonal. And again, if you're okay with eggs, eat them a lot. If you're not, take a break. And this is where it starts to get interesting because at this point in human evolution, we actually started trying to make things like beer and uh, batters and stuff like that. But we were so limited by the actual food sources that we had to try. <clears throat> the only thing we could usually find were called pseudograins. Right? And they're things that fall off of bushes and come up as tubers, say like buckwheat or uh, quinoa and stuff like that, that are not actually grains because they're not coming from a grass. They still have the same biochemistry to protect themselves from you know, insects and stuff. So they have some anti-nutrients, but people back in the day, and I'm going to say this you know, from my ancestors, and sorry if this grosses you out, uh, truth hurts, <laughs> what they used to do is actually chew up the grains and spit them out into clay pots and let them go bad, in the sense of turning into a batter, so that you could cook them up in things, and then the young people and the old people could eat them. So everything was basically a mixture of grandma love, and everything else that you would do to make the food food. And people did that up until like 200 years ago around the world. People probably still do it in tribal areas around the world. We just don't know that anymore because we can go shopping. But, but before that, that was the only way to make certain foods non-destructive. You know, they sometimes soak them in lye, they bury them for a while, they do all kinds of things to make them edible for people who didn't have strong immune systems. Or maybe had immune systems that were too strong. So, Next thing that's going to happen is humans are going to get our brains all, you know, working really hard. <clears throat> now that we've done our, you know, little migrations back and forth, we're going to start moving around in, in circles. And it's funny in uh, our language when we use the, the word to describe this world, it's uh, and it means uh, the world where we walk around in the same place all the time. Because when you go from migrating everywhere to migrating kind of around like this to migrating in the same place, that's a big change in reality. Like literally, that's the name of how your world is now. We just walk around in the same place. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> used to be walk anywhere you want. Now it's walk around in the same place. But the good thing is, is you can walk around in the same place. Uh, you can basically eat everything we've talked about up until now, plus things like fermented dairy, like yogurt and cheese and... and Obviously, if you wanted to use milk, but most people would use milk to turn it into something you could store or that you could ferment so it would last longer. <clears throat> uh, more fermented vegetables, kimchi, sauerkraut, kefir, uh, beet kvass. There's so many different ways to uh, take food and make it last longer and, in a way, make it more nutritious. And this is what's interesting because um, it's all about how smart our grandmothers were, honestly. Because they realized as you start trying to eat more oats and more rice and more whatever else that has more starch in it, that you're probably feeding mostly to your pigs and your cows and your horses, but you get hungry, you know, let's find out what that's like. Uh, when you look at it medically, the only way to balance out eating those kind of starches is to eat something like kimchi or sauerkraut. It's not surprising in the parts of the world that had the most uh, long-term use of certain kinds of bread or the most long-term use of rice, they have things like kimchi and sauerkraut. Because they just figured out, well, Grandma says if you're going to have all that, you got to do this. And they were right. We just forgot. And again, there's fermented drinks. I'm not thinking uh, alcohol, although I'm sure that was happening uh, a bit at that time. 
uh, but again, things like kombucha and stuff that you would have as a beverage that would actually help correct from the sudden up in, in uh, carbohydrates. Because the whole, the whole story of human history is access to carbohydrate. And the whole history of human aging is how much uh, insulin you use every day. Because that's how fast you're going to age. It's how much insulin you actually have to use every day. Which is how much carbohydrate you use every day. These whole, uh, you see these uh, articles come out, these whole low carb diets are killing everyone, they're super dangerous. And then you go into the research and it's completely made up and they just wanted to make sure they could sell more rice bran or something. So, um, yeah. You can put anything out there as credible nowadays. It's crazy. As a scientist, it kind of hurts my soul, just saying. <clears throat> anyway, and one thing I would always say about uh, people who are looking at a homesteader diet is, it's kind of like eating, relatively like eating a New Year's or uh, what's coming up, a Thanksgiving feast almost every day compared to the rest of human history. In the sense of, wow, we have so much. Well, we have, still have so much. There's always so much. Where I grew up in the bush, we had a root cellar. You know, you go there in the snow, literally in snowshoes. I know I'm supposed to be 150 or something, but I'm not. You know, we'd drag out big, you know, things of food and drag it on the sleigh back to where we lived and then, you know, make all this food. And it was just like, wow, this is crazy. You got animals everywhere, trap lines are full, and there's this big, huge cave of food we've stuck in the side of a hill. Fill it up every summer and wow, so cool. But in order to make all that work, you literally have to do about 14 hours a day of moving around in chores to make all of that food possible. So if you're wondering, how did these homesteaders live so long and stay so fit? Well, they were carrying a cow around. Well, they were carrying a bucket of something else around to feed a horse and move the cow over here so you can fix your fence. And uh, no. <laughs> Maybe that's why cow tipping became so popular. What do we do with the cows now? I don't know. <laughs> Used to carry them around every day. So if you are going to want to eat that kind of volume of foods, especially more carbohydrate foods, you're going to have to really wrap your mind around the reality that that means you're going to have to be that much more active to not be completely thwarted by what you're doing. So there's that. So uh, nutrient density, we're going to get into that uh, in about three or four minutes. We're just going to take a little break, give people a chance to move around, and then we'll come right back. Uh, if you want to unmute your mics and ask... Okay, so uh, we're going to dive back in. Uh, I'm just going to mute someone's microphone who's off doing unknown things. So nutrient density can be complicated if you get into uh, super, super, super detail. But for most of us, I think there's just some real obvious common sense. So the question we're asking ourselves is, uh, is what we're eating going to just be fuel in the sense of calories or is actually food in the sense it's going to help us build cells and muscles and brains and bones and stuff? Because basically it's one or the other. <clears throat> right? So well, the first thing we look at when we're uh, in the sense of nutritional science, before we do any thinking about a food, you have to subtract the water because water isn't a nutrient, although you need it to live. It doesn't have calories. Right? It's not a protein or a fat or anything else, so you might as well just take that out of your math. And here's some examples. I mean, if a watermelon is 92% water, and you're trying to decide what's in there, well, there's about 8% of something in there, right? And some of it's carbohydrate and some of it's other things. Some of it's uh, a fiber you can't eat. Some of it's ash and dirt and stuff you don't really want to know about in your vegetables. But um, not a lot of food in there, but a really refreshing thing to have, right? Potatoes are about 80% water. Right? So that's why we all just want to eat a giant plate of potatoes because you're eating mostly water. 
<coughs> fats, on the other hand, have zero percent water. So if you eat a lump of butter, you know, you decide to drink that bottle of olive oil, finally, that's been staring at you for months. Kidding. <laughs> it's like, <gasps> never thought of that. Uh, you're just eating pure fats in, in a sense of calories, and especially around the math, because we're trying to avoid the math, but we're trying to respect the math, if, if that's the way to frame this. <clears throat> Animal proteins are about 65% water. When you cook them, they go down to about 55% water, because most cooking methods is through evaporation. Right? When you cook a steak on the stove or the barbie, you're basically evaporating it. If you left it there long enough, what would it turn into? They would have no water in it, so you could use it as a ballistic weapon or a frisbee, <laughs> depending on your steak, right? Same thing with roasting, right? Different temperature, different kind of control, but you leave the roast in there a lot longer than you leave the steak on top of your stove. It'll also turn into the hockey puck. So we just want to have a, a sense of, wow, so when I eat certain foods, there's so much less food in the food than I thought. And again, when you start getting respectful of the math, that's, that's what you have to be thinking about. The other thing is fiber. There are certain fibers, like say celery. If I gave everyone here a stick of celery and we all chewed it up the entire time we're sitting or hanging out together, by the end of the two hours, we'd still be chewing on a little piece of fiber that you will never take apart. And if you swallowed that, the bugs in your tummy would eat it, but you will never get through it. So this brings up another really important thing is fiber is something you're going to want to really understand as we get more into your digestive system because the balance is crucial and different for almost everybody. Right? And we're going to get to that, but for now we just want to respect that's not actually food. It's food for bugs, but they don't pay rent, so screw up. Or something fun. <clears throat> actually, they pay rent because they're making things you can't make, and if, what, if you didn't have those things, you'd be dead. So they're actually really important. Note to self, never say that again. <laughs> <laughs>